Well, it's great to be with you as always. Today, uh, we find ourselves back in the Gospel of John, and the plan is to wrap up chapter 10 today. Uh, We've been in this sermon series for the entire year, and we finally reached the end of chapter 10. So if you already have not turned to John 10, why don't you do that with me now? Uh, There are a number of sources out there. You can just do a Google search, not that that's always reliable, but you could. Uh, There are a number of sources out there that claim that the average person makes roughly 35,000 decisions every single day of their life. Uh, When I first read that, um, I thought that was crazy. Um, Doesn't sound right. I'm a skeptic anyway, naturally. Uh, But then I saw a study from Cornell University, and they did this interesting study, and they found that even when it comes to mealtimes, the three meals per day, um, we are making hundreds, if not thousands, of very little decisions just to eat every day. Um, Our life is full of decisions. It's the reason why uh, Steve Jobs wore the same clothes every single day of his life. Uh, It's the reason why Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook does the exact same thing. If you see them, he's always wearing blue jeans, same sneakers, same brand, has a bunch of pairs, same exact ones. Monday through Friday, it's a black t-shirt. Saturday and Sunday, he wears a blue t-shirt. Zuckerberg said, I make so many decisions, so many big decisions. I just can't handle the thought of making daily decisions on what to wear. It's the reason why I personally... Uh, will almost always let people decide for me uh, where to eat, almost always. I don't care that much. Um, And when I find a restaurant I like, I keep going back to that place over and over again, and I always order the same thing. I'm not interested in anything new. You might think I'm kidding, what I'm about to tell you right now, but this is is absolutely true. On Mondays, that's our staff day off, Okay, Mondays are our off day. On Mondays, I have been ordering the same soup from the same restaurant for lunch almost every single week for the last five years. Uh, I have to make many other important decisions in my life. I don't want to think about food. I don't care too much about food. And it's really good soup. We all have a lot of decisions to make. But there is one decision Uh, one decision that is more important than every other decision you will ever make, and that is, what will we do with Jesus Christ? What will we do with Jesus? Will you reject him, or will you believe in him? And this is the purpose of John's gospel. John wrote this book that we might see Jesus for who he truly is, And then with that understanding, his hope is that we might believe in this Jesus and find life in his name. The whole book has that purpose, to compile evidence, if you will, so that we might believe and find eternal life. Well, that goal that John has, in many ways, reaches the pinnacle, reaches the peak right here at the end of chapter 10. Up until now, we've heard and read things like, the word was God, the word was with God. The word became flesh. That's John's testimony. We have the testimony of John the Baptist, claiming that Jesus was the redeemer, that he was the lamb of God. 
We have the testimony of the apostles who followed him when they claimed in finding Jesus to have found the Messiah, the Son of God, they proclaim. And of course, we have over and over and over again the testimony of Jesus himself, claiming to be the sent one, the one, everyone that, uh, the one that everyone was waiting for, claiming to be God in a, in a variety of, of beautiful and creative ways. But now here in chapter 10, we have perhaps the clearest, most explicit statement of the deity of Jesus, where Jesus will say to all those who will listen, I and the Father are one. John wants there to be absolutely no mistake about it. He wants us to know who Jesus claimed to be so that we in turn can make a decision about him. And so that's what today is really all about. Some people will reject him, others of us will believe. And of course, the question for us, just like it has been all throughout John is, again, what will we personally decide here? And so let's walk through this text together. And all I wanna really do for us today is just tell you what happened on this day 2,000 years ago. In some ways, I find myself like a storyteller about a true story. But I just want to tell you this story, and then we'll see where that leads us at the end. So here we go. Let's jump into the text. And we see that this story, it, it all starts with a confrontation. A confrontation. This is verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and then we are told it was winter. So we find ourselves back in Jerusalem yet again, and yet again, we're here for another feast. We recently found ourselves at the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember that? Uh, in, or the Feast of Booths in chapters 7, 8, and 9 of John's Gospel. And now we find ourselves two months later. And I'm sure the majority of us have heard of this celebration, uh, this Feast of Dedication. You know it. You just don't know you know it. It's called the Feast of Lights, or what people now call Hanukkah. Okay? And I'll let you look this up for yourselves. But we know that what would happen is that the Jews would come together, and they actually still do to this day, to celebrate the Jewish people taking back Jerusalem and reestablishing the temple after they were brutalized and shamed by this horrible Syrian leader whose name was Antiochus. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the Great. Antiochus the... The, 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 the marvelous one, if you will. He called himself that. Okay. And this all happened around 170 BC, when Antiochus and his army come in and take Jerusalem. So we learn that right now, in the time of Christ, that celebration has come roughly November, early December. This year, Hanukkah starts on December 7th. So it's kind of fitting. We're in this season here in the Bible. We're in this season here in real life. Okay, you can kind of get the vibe. We learn the time of that celebration has come, and it's winter, we're told. And understand that note there, that it's winter, is put there by John, uh, not just to tell us that the cold and rainy season was upon them. Uh, John wants us to know that it was also winter spiritually. The, the Son of God has come, and he is shining bright amongst the people He's becoming brighter and brighter and brighter, revealing more and more and more of who he is. But in turn, over and over and over again, he's being rejected. 
It was winter on the calendar, we're told, and it was winter in the hearts of the Jews. And then we keep going. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him. If you can with me just for a minute, you can let the movie sort of play out or run in your head here. Jesus is walking along. He is likely, most likely, followed by his disciples. And we're told that together they are underneath this place called Solomon's Colonnade, or another translation would say Solomon's Porch. Um, You can look this up, look at pictures of it, actually. But it's this sort of, think of a covered patio area with a roof, right, that's attached to the temple. And so it's cold, it's possibly raining. Jesus, therefore, with his disciples, is under this covering on this patio. And then out of nowhere, we're told, Jesus and probably his disciples are surrounded by the Jews. And that word surrounded is violent, okay? Um, This isn't like, oh, let's gather around Jesus to see how he's doing. There's anger here. They are upset. They're here to confront him. And we see that this confrontation begins with a question. Look at this. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, Now, we have to understand, okay, I want to be clear here. Up until this point, Jesus actually has has not directly used the words, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah. He has not directly said that, and that's for a really good reason. It's not because he isn't the Christ. It's not because he, he wasn't the Messiah. He is. But you need to remember that that title, Messiah or Christ, was extremely politically charged in this day, right? That actually, when you said Messiah or Christ amongst the Jews of that generation, when you heard that term or that title, you would automatically think of a military or political conqueror. That's what would come to your mind. And that's why Jesus said, listen, right? I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you're expecting, I'm not the Messiah you've been looking for. Uh, You're looking for a Messiah who will call down fire from heaven upon the Roman Empire. But but I'm not that Messiah. And this is why Jesus deliberately, deliberately, over and over again, avoided that title, Messiah, and instead referred to himself as things like the Son of God or the Son of Man to make it very clear to people, make it very plain to people who he is. And so now you understand a little bit of why they are asking him, though. They're asking him this question, why they're so angry with him. They're saying, if you are the Christ, tell us right now. Make it more clear. How long will you keep us in suspense? They hate him. Understand, Jesus has made it very clear who he is. Their problem is they just don't like his response. (laughs) And even though Jesus has told them time and time again, he chooses to be gracious and he answers them again. And so it's here in the story where we move to the claim. We go from the confrontation to the claim. 
This is verse 25 now. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So what we see here is that Jesus essentially is answering the Jews in two different ways. And this is important. First, he, he simply says, I already told you, right? I told you so. I, I told you who I am. And what's the problem? You just don't believe. And who has Jesus told them that he is? Well, Jesus could have said a lot of things. I told you that I'm such and such. He, he could have said, I told you I'm the one who came from heaven. He, he could have said, I, I told you that whoever believes in me would have eternal life. I, I told you that I'm the unique son of God. He could have said, I, I told you that I will judge all of humanity. I told you just before this that all of the Old Testament scriptures, all of your law speaks about me. They all point to me. I, I told you that I, I perfect re, perfectly reveal the Father and that I always please the Father and that I never sin. I've said that to you. I, I told you that before Abraham was, I am. I told you that I will not only die, but I will raise myself from the dead. I told you that I'm the bread of life. I told you that I'm the light of the world. I told you that I'm the door. And just before this, like two months ago, 60 days ago, I told you that I'm the good shepherd. I think Jesus has told them enough. And by the way, by the way, please understand, this is just how we've seen Jesus describe himself in the Gospel of John. This isn't counting Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So listen, again, the problem wasn't that, that Jesus was unclear about who he was and where he came from. The problem was that the religious leaders had hearts of unbelief. I've said this again and again and again through this series. I'm going to say it again and again and again. It's all about the heart, isn't it? It's always about the heart. And Jesus goes to their heart here. So Jesus answers by saying, I've already told you, but you don't believe. Your hearts aren't in the right place. But then there's a second part to this. He says to them, listen, not only have my words shown you who I am, but my works, my actions have also told you exactly who I am. That is, if you look at my life, you'll see where I came from. You'll see that I was sent from the Father, that I was sent from heaven. He's basically tell, telling them here, look at the miracles, look at the signs. But beyond that, not just those, the miracles and the signs, beyond that, look how I've treated people. Look how I've lived my life. And he says to them, what fault can you find in me? That's the point here. And I think this is an open invitation, by the way, to every single one of us here in the room, everybody listening online, everybody in our entire world. This is an open invitation. Do you want to know who Jesus is? It's simple. Look at his words and look at his works and see for yourself. And then answer the question for yourself. Well, continuing on now, Jesus reiterates something that he told the Jews previously. He repeats himself for good reason. He says here, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Again, we've seen this before, right? It was in this last week. 
Why don't they believe? Why do they have these, these hearts of unbelief? Jesus tells them a second time now, because you're not one of my sheep. You don't belong to me. And, and, and how do we know that for sure? How do we know for sure that, that they're not one of his sheep? Well, it's because Jesus' disciples, his true followers, his sheep, hear what he says, Jesus says, and they follow him, they obey. And the religious leaders are clearly not doing that, right? And understand what Jesus is doing here as well. He's basically like, do you really want me to be direct with you? Do you really want me to make it clear? All right, I'll do that for you. Not only am I the Messiah, not only am I the Christ, and he's going to kind of put a stamp on that in a second, but he turns it around a bit and he says, let me tell you something about yourselves. He says to them, first of all, you're not worthy shepherds, but more than that, you're not even worthy sheep of God. Jesus lays it all out before them right here at the end of John chapter 10. He's basically saying to them, you're so concerned with whether or not I'm the Christ, with whether or not I'm the Messiah, but your biggest concern, your biggest problem should be that you don't even belong to God. Do you see that here? Well, then Jesus follows that with some of the most comforting words, I believe, in the entire New Testament. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, this verse, this text, these words from Jesus should warm your, your soul. He says this to us, to the Jews, but to us, his sheep. He says, for those who follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, he says. Listen, I believe this wholeheartedly. Uh, someone needs to hear this today. You need to hear these words. Um, I was sitting in your seat maybe 10 years ago. I needed to hear these words, even though I'd even gone through seminary, all that. If you are a follower of Jesus, a true follower we are told here by Jesus that you are secure. Because why? Because, because we who are in Christ have been, he says, given eternal life. It's a gift. Jesus says this is a gift, meaning that this eternal life that we've received, that we didn't inherit it, we didn't earn it. And because we didn't earn it or because we didn't work for it, we can't forfeit it. You understand that? We didn't do anything to receive salvation. We did nothing to receive the eternal life that Jesus gives to us. And so, in turn, we can do nothing to forfeit this eternal life as well. The Lord himself, Jesus, says here, underline it, highlight it, circle it if you need to. Because if you're, some of us, the theology is different. Underline this. For those who are mine, I give them eternal life. And what do you say? They will never perish. You have to do something with those words. They will never perish. No one who is a sheep of his will ever be separated from him. And Jesus says more. He says, do you want security of that? 
Do you want assurance? Jesus says, no one can take my sheep out of my hand. He says, no one can take them from me. In other words, Jesus not only gives you the gift of salvation, but he's actually holding you, if you will, to make sure that you keep that salvation. And then he says, and then he says, if that security isn't enough, there's a double security just in case you don't trust Jesus. Because then Jesus says, not only am I holding you, but he says, then all who are mine, all of my sheep that I'm holding, the Father is holding on to them as well. See that? It's just absolutely incredible. You are given, if the microphone is salvation, right? It's a far stretch here, but you are given the gift of salvation. Jesus is holding on to you, and then the Father is holding on as well. This is just absolutely incredible. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, I think it's just, I did, like twice this week. It's just worth it here and now to just exhale right here. What peace, right? what joy to be able to say, yes, Jesus, you are holding on to me. Such incredible comfort. Well, if Jesus hadn't offended the Jewish leaders enough at this point, and he has over and over again, look at verse 30. If they wanted a clear answer on who he is, who he was, Jesus makes it about as clear as possible now. He can't do much more than this. He says to anyone who will listen, here it is, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Understand the context here. Jesus has just talked about holding on to his people. And then the Father also holding on to his people in this uh, this, this beautiful cooperative work, how, how the Father and the Son work together in the plan of salvation, how they, how they have the same heart, the same mind, the, the same will. And so it makes sense now, right? This is the right time, the right place, the right context to say this. The Father and I are one. This is deeply Deeply spiritual, but is also a deeply theological statement that Jesus makes right here. Because understand what it means. First of all, it means, this means that the Father and the Son are distinct. That is, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Jesus saying, I and my Father makes a distinction. It means that there are two separate persons here. But with that, he then says, he says that he, says that he and the Father are, are one. And that word one here is critical. It's key in the Greek language. What that oneness means here, it's so powerful because this is not just referring, it is, but not just referring to oneness in person. But this is more so a, a oneness in essence. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, think of it this way. Uh, your essence here in the room, my essence is that we are human beings. Okay? We have human essence. And I guess you know, dogs have canine essence or something like that, if you will. Okay? Different, distinct, right? But Jesus is saying, my essence 
My essence and the Father's essence are the same, he says. They are one, and that is divine essence, that we are divine. We share in divinity equally. And you just can't, I just can't overstate here how, how dramatic this is. And more than that, this is so important to the text. Please understand that the Jews here understood what Jesus, Jesus just said perfectly. They know exactly what he's saying. They know exactly, this isn't hidden from them. They know exactly that he's saying that our essence is the same, our essence is defined, we are two persons, but the same God. And how do I know that they knew that? Well, because look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You have to, you have to understand with me here that the Jews here surrounding Jesus the intensity of the moment, you can picture it, right? They are, they are looking into the face of a man right now. This is a man from Galilee. They know his family. They know who his, they know who his physical father was. They know his mother. They know he was a carpenter. He's a man, and yet... This, this man has just made this, this staggering claim. It, it's, it's unbelievable, but, but this is the claim of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is God. Do, do you have this scene in your mind? Can you picture it with me? And then at that, here comes the charge. There's a confrontation, a claim, and now the charge. The religious leaders hear these words from Jesus, I and the Father are one, and that's enough. This is the end. They've confronted him for the very last time. Jesus just committed blasphemy. He's done the worst thing you could ever do as a Jewish person. There's nothing worse than this. A man cannot claim to be God in Jewish law and get away with it. But Jesus has done that very, very thing so clearly. And so the Jews know he must be killed. He must be killed by being stoned. And at that, it's incredible. What we, what we see here is that Jesus actually doesn't run. Not at all. He actually stays, stops them in their tracks with the stones in their hands. They are ready to, to knock him over, knock him out, and crush him. But to them, these people with holding stones in their hands, who he knows they hate him, Jesus calmly replies to them, and he says this, I have shown you many good works from the Father." For which of them are you going to stone me? To which they say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They say, we're stoning you for blasphemy, Jesus. That's the charge. 
And again, what, what happens to blasphemers according to Old Testament law? It's in the book of Leviticus. They get stoned. They deserve stoning. And so understand, the Jews there that day, they thought that they were carrying out their righteous duty here. They were doing the nation, the people of God, a favor by eliminating Jesus. You're making yourself out to be God, they say, and you're a man. But listen, church, we have to, we have to be very clear about this in our own minds and hearts, but also clear in our world, that Jesus did not make himself out to be God when he told them he was God. He was simply telling them the truth. He was not boasting He wasn't bragging. He was just revealing the truth. The Jews are furious, rocks in their hands, ready to throw. The tension here has never been higher in the Gospel of John. But then Jesus causes them to think. And he does something very interesting here because what we're going to see him do is speak to them in this really unique way. He actually reasons with them, uses a tactic. He reasons with them in the way that, that rabbis of that day would reason when they would talk theology. He gets on their level. And he uses rationale, logic. Check this out, starting in verse 34. Jesus answered them. Again, the scene, tents, rocks, the whole thing. He says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God? We'll pause there. This is a bit wordy. can be a little bit confusing in English. Let me try to make it really simple. The bottom line of what Jesus is saying here is, why are you guys so upset that I'm calling myself God when in your own scriptures, other men have been called gods, he says. That's the basis of Jesus' philosophical argument here, if you will. And to understand what he's saying, you have to understand Psalm 82. If you don't know Psalm 82, you have no idea what Jesus is saying right here, and neither did I. (laughs) Okay, so Psalm 82 is basically, it's basically a judgment by God on the rulers of Israel. And understand, these these rulers, they were more like judges. They were considered the judges of Israel. Uh, They were put in place in Israel by God to, to resolve issues, conflict, to solve problems for the nation. But what God says about them in Psalm 82 is that they were corrupt, that they're wicked, They are supposed to be the protectors of Israel, helping the weak, the poor, and the needy, but they were walking in darkness. And here's where Jesus gets his words from John 10. This is verse 6 of Psalm 82. Look at it. I think it's on the screen. This is Psalm 82, verse 6. I said to the judges of Israel, men appointed by God, he says, I said, you are gods. See it? And all of you are sons of the Most High. By the way, very important distinction here. Otherwise, you won't understand John 10. That's lowercase g, by the way, 
Okay, so see that there, lowercase g, you are gods, he says. And, and why would the Lord say that? Why would he use that language of them? Well, it's simple because they were representatives, ambassadors, if you will, of the one true, most high living God, he says. Because they were given authority by God to represent God, to teach the people of God to uphold the word of God. Did I say God enough there? Okay. They were representatives of the one true God because they were given authority to teach the people and uphold the word. But what's the problem? They aren't doing that. Not at all. So are they fulfilling their calling? Are they fulfilling their mission? Are they being good ambassadors, good gods, if you will? Absolutely not. Again, they were corrupt. But listen now. The reality still remains that despite what they were doing and their failure, they were still given this title or this designation. These corrupt judges were called gods because they were meant to be instruments of God, agents of God. And so now you hopefully better understand what Jesus is saying in John 10. He's like, hey, do you remember in your own scriptures, the ones that you have memorized, by the way, do you remember that even those guys, those judges of Israel, they were called gods. And you're upset with me that I call myself God. Right? We know those guys' lives were wicked, corrupt, evil, dark, and yet the Lord still gave them that title. And so then he says, what about me? Based on my life, my works, my words, what he's saying to them is, do you think I deserve that title? Jesus is like, come on, basically. Make the comparison. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, in other words, what I've said, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. This is an, an amazing argument when you really stop and pause and think about it. Again, he goes right, Jesus goes right to the Old Testament to make his case. Certainly, Jesus says, if the term gods could be applied to corrupt rulers of Israel, it's not a stretch, is it, that the incorruptible, perfect, sinless, righteous son of God could be called God as well? The point is, the point is though, overarching this, what he's saying to these men holding stones is, think about what you're doing. Stop and think about what you're about to do before you start throwing stones at me. And I want us to go back and notice one more important point or detail in all of this. Notice back in verse 35, if you have a Bible in front of you, because it won't be back on the screen. Notice back in verse 35 that Jesus says, that the word of God, the scriptures, he says, cannot be broken. By the way, Jesus makes the distinction here that the word of God and the scriptures are the same. That's important for us. I think that tells us a lot about Jesus' view of the scriptures, doesn't it? That the scriptures that we have are the word of God. Jesus believed that. It doesn't matter what the world tells us about the scriptures or even what you or I say about the scriptures. I choose to believe that the scriptures are the word of God because Jesus said it. <laughs> That's his opinion. But what is Jesus saying with these words here? 
Well, well, he's saying that the scriptures, he says, the scriptures cannot be changed. Uh, more literally, he says that the scriptures cannot be, be loosed or untied or, or released, removed, dismissed. They cannot be nullified. He's saying, I think the best illustration I could think of or best visual is he's saying that the Bible is like this seamless chain. Think of like links. It's this seamless change and, chain and, and that not one of those links can be removed can be loosened or, or pulled out. You can't do that with scriptures. And so Jesus is here looking at these religious teachers and leaders. And, and they know this reality about the scriptures. They believe that the scriptures can't be loosed or unhinged. They know the scriptures can't be changed. And so Jesus, though, even though they, he knows they know, he reminds them right after he references Psalm 82. And the argument is basically like, you know the scriptures, you know what they say, you know what's been said about corrupt people, what do you say about a person who's righteous? He's basically saying to them, what in the world could you possibly say to me? (laughs) He says, sure, listen to my words to you, but beyond that, just go to the scriptures and think objectively. Think rationally now. You're you're, you're all emotionally led right now. Think objectively. When someone comes from God and speaks for God, there is a sense in which we see in the scriptures, they can be called lowercase gods here because of that representation. That's true in the scriptures. The Old Testament has a precedent for that. So if that's true of corrupt men, how much more should that be true of me? It's brilliant here from Jesus. And in the midst of that, I want us to notice here as well, I want us to notice, I almost missed it. It was really late last night, and I caught it, and I added it. (laughs) Notice here as well that there is this gracious and final invitation that Jesus gives in the midst of this sort of argument or discussion. Do you see it there? It's a bit of a plea. Jesus says, I know you don't believe what I'm saying, but then he's saying, but believe the works that I've done so that you understand who I'm saying that I am. Jesus is like, you can call me a blasphemer because of my words, but you can't possibly call me a blasphemer if you look at my works. They all came from the Father to honor the Father. This here is a last call, if you will. It's a last call to the Jews to come and believe. You haven't followed me because of my words, But I'm asking you now, consider, follow me, believe in me because of my works. Isn't it amazing, it was to me at least, isn't it amazing that Jesus is still willing to extend grace here? These guys, again, don't miss the visualization. They have rocks in their hands. They're surrounding him. They hate him. They're attempting to murder him. And yet Jesus' response is, think about what you're doing. Know who I am. Look at my life and believe. And so now we finish the story with the choice. The choice. Everyone has a choice. Everyone has a choice now. What are we going to do with the words and works of Jesus? 
And what we see of the Jews, once again, is that they don't believe. Their response is an unfortunate one. It's very sad. It says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So what we learn at this point is that it didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter what appeals Jesus made. It didn't matter how merciful, gracious, or kind he was. Their hearts were set on unbelief. And they won't stop going after Jesus until they see him nailed on the cross. So here we see they try to arrest him again. They've tried that before, right? A few times. And yet again, we see something familiar. They fail. I think I told you like five times why they fail. But I'll say it again. Simple. Jesus' hour has not yet come. It wasn't his time to die. Jesus will die in his perfect time. And it's like 90 days after this. But beyond that point here in the text, beyond that, I want us to focus on the fact that the end of chapter 10 here is summing up a crucial point that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John. The end of chapter 10 is somewhat of a summation, by the way, of the entire Gospel of John or the first 10 chapters. And that is this. John wants us to know this, that you can be right in front of Jesus, standing right before him. You can be looking him in the eyes. You can hear his words, witness his life, see all the signs, be there for all the miracles, and yet you can still make the choice to harshly reject him. That is one way to respond to Jesus. That's a choice. But then there's the other way. And praise God that there are not only rejectors among us, but there are receivers as well. And this is how John chapter 10 closes, starting in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first as John the Baptist. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John, that's the Baptist, John the Baptist did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. We are told here that Jesus, once again, goes across the Jordan. And by the way, from other gospel accounts, we know exactly, and later in John, exactly where Jesus goes. He goes to a place called Bethany. And it's not the Bethany where where, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It's a different one. We're going to be introduced to the other Bethany very soon. This is the Bethany, we're told, where John the Baptist began his ministry. And understand what John's doing here. We're told John the Baptist began his ministry here in Bethany. And we're about to be told that Jesus will actually end his ministry publicly in Bethany as well. Jesus will stay here in this place called Bethany, this town, for roughly three months. After this, we'll see that Jesus will return back to Jerusalem for one more feast. And at that time, it'll be the final time because he'll die. That's where we're headed over the next several months together. But while he's in Bethany, we're simply told this, 
that the people have seen and heard enough from Jesus up to this point to proclaim that all that John the Baptist had taught them and said about this man was true. And what's the result of them coming to that understanding? Verse 42, and many believed in him there. Many believed. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 12, and to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave them the right to become children of God. Many believed. And by the way, that's it. This is Jesus' final moment in public. Public ministry. He's done. This is the last thing that we are told about Jesus' public ministry. Everything else will be done in private. Here in Bethany, Jesus will still be with his disciples. He will stay with them over the next three months. He will continue to teach them. He will continue to reveal himself to them, show them his life, show them who he is, and prepare them for the next phase of their life where they will birth the church. And you know what? You know what? Like the Jews in Jerusalem, and like these other people in Bethany, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, they too have a choice when it comes to Jesus. And so do you. So do I. So the compelling question today is a really obvious one. It's a simple one today, but it's the most important decision we'll ever make. As we close out Jesus' public ministry in chapter 10 of John's gospel, here's the question. What do you choose? We all have a lot of decisions to make. Life isn't easy. There's a lot of choices. But there is one decision that is more important than every other decision you will ever make in your entire life. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a place in God's family. It starts, it all starts with deciding to believe in Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord. That's the gospel. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. What do you say? I pray that you believe. Let's pray together.